Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. But if children live with encouragement, they learn confidence. If children live with tolerance, they learn patience. If children live with praise, they learn appreciation. If children live with acceptance, they learn to love. If children live with approval, they learn to like themselves. What are your children living with? The truth is, children have a special place in God's heart. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Unconditional Love, and shows you how Jesus modeled godly love and care for his children. Stay with us. The Winning Walk begins in just a moment. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Unconditional Love. We talk about parenting. We first of all spent several weeks talking about what it means to have a marriage that's based on biblical principles. And I said, which I firmly believe and can affirm that if the Bible teaches us about marriage, if those principles are not true, nothing else the Bible teaches us also can be true. Also, what the Bible teaches us about parenting is true, or it negates the other teaching of the Bible. And notice how this works together so beautifully. The bond of marriage is the God-given foundation for the bond and the calling to parenthood. Marriage, parenthood. It's not that a single parent could not do it. Certainly we have some beautiful illustrations of that going on in our church right now. But God's plan was for marriage, that foundation, and on that foundation you would have parenthood. And the bottom line of all of this, God teaches us as husband, wife, to love our mate unconditionally. And then the Bible teaches us that we are to love our children unconditionally. Where in the world does that unconditional love come from? Ideally, as the husband, wife, love one another, the overflow of their love to the children is where unconditional love is manufactured. The perfect picture would be a couple who would be hugging one another and a toddler would come in and unnoticed until the toddler begins to make his way between the father and the mother and this husband wife and they bend down as they hug one another. The toddler is in the middle receiving that unconditional love that came forth from the unconditional love of a man for his wife. Perfect biblical picture of how to parent. And our problem today is how do you parent in a 
broken world, in a broken culture, and the challenge is so high, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the ministry of a church that loves kids, it can be done, and it will be done in this family of faith. For hundreds and thousands of years since the dawn of history, children have been pushed aside. In many cultures, you could let the child live or let the child die. If the child was like they wanted the child to be, the child would be retained. If not, the child would be given away, thrown away, done away with, put away, out of sight, out of mind. And generally speaking, that's the whole culture of the world with few exceptions with few exceptions, until Jesus. Jesus took the female and elevated her to equality. Male and female, bond or free, equality with the male gender. Jesus did that. And Jesus also took the child and put him on the center of the stage where the child is rarely, if ever, found on the center of the stage. And we see it beautifully in many places, but none clearer, I think, than we find in the book of Mark. The disciples are in Galilee, in Capernaum to be precise, and they were debating with people about Divorce, and finally they were talking about when Jesus brings in this kingdom, what position am I going to have? Asked Andrew. What position am I going to have? Asked Thomas. What position will we have when the kingdom is established? And they're debating this, and Jesus comes up to him and said, what are you guys talking about? Silence. And then Jesus looks out and sees a little boy, perhaps a toddler, and this is what he does. Listen to the words. Taking a child, Mark 9, 36, he set him before them, taking him in his arms, and he said to his apostles, disciples, whoever received one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. In other words, he took that child in his arms. He said, man, this child receives me, and I receive this child, and the one who sent me, my heavenly Father, receives this child as well. The child was put in the center to show an example of what leadership and what position in the kingdom of God is all about. But then they take off and they start talking about other theological, very important issues. And then finally, Jesus looks at them in verse 42. Right after that, it says, listen, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy, millstone hung around his neck 
and he'd been cast into the sea. Is that pretty serious? Does that sound over the top, even for Jesus? If anyone messes around with, confuses, lies to, abuses any of these little ones, it would be the best thing for them if you tied a big rock, a stone around their neck and threw them in the sea and they were drowned. Boy, that sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? That's the words of Jesus. Now, you would think that those apostles would have understood the centrality of a child. No one's going to get in the kingdom unless they have the humility of a child, the grace of a child, the understanding of a child, not to be childish, but to be childlike, the secret of greatness. Now, they didn't get it. In the very next chapter, that's the ninth chapter, they left Galilee in the north and they moved to Judea in the south. And now a large crowd gathered around Jesus and there were children in the crowd. There were children in the crowd. And the children looked at Jesus and he was a central figure as he was teaching and the children were rushing to him and the parents were perhaps taking the children, wanting Jesus to place his hand on them and to set them aside and to honor them as we sought to do today in our own way. But the apostles, look what they were doing. Verse 13, chapter 10 of Mark, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. They said, hey, hey, we're doing big stuff. You know what they were talking about? Divorce and marriage. That's pretty important. The children were coming to Jesus. I don't know how many, a large crowd, a lot of kids, toddlers, four, five, six-year-olds come to Jesus. And boy, the apostle says, we're doing big stuff here. We've got important things going on. You parents, take care of your children. Man, this is the Messiah. And we're pushing him away. And then we see something that we see only three other times in the Bible. Verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Tell you something. Jesus snapped. Bang. This only happened three times in the scripture. Mark 3 in the synagogue. He's going to heal a man with a withered arm. And all the Pharisees were looking and said, well, is he going to do this on the Sabbath day? And Jesus snapped righteous indignation toward their attitude toward healing. And then we know in the next chapter in our book here, in chapter 11, Jesus, before he's crucified in that last week, went to the temple and saw all of those in God's house taking advantage of people in exchanging coins and selling goods. It was like the marketplace, exploiting people, even who come from far to worship on that high and holy day. And Jesus snapped and he got that whip and he went through that sacred temple and he cleaned out all those con artists, all those phonies, all those hypocrites who were exploiting in the name of religion, the people who would come 
And then in our scripture today, Jesus snapped when they saw them pushing the children away. And Jesus said, permit the little children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Hmm. And Jesus took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying hands on them. Jesus took children and put them at the center of his ministry. Let me ask you something. What has happened to the body of Christ for 2,000 years? Basically, the church has said, put the children over there. Get them out of the way. Let me tell you something about the second family right here in which we are a part of in this worship service. We love kids and we can prove it because they are central in everything we do in this church family. Now, in most churches, you'll have a time, we need somebody to work with the junior high kids won't somebody volunteer? Nobody will go and work with those, you know, those junior high and in middle school. Man, we need people to go to the middle school. How desperately, well, high school, would you dare work with those high school kids? We don't do that here. We've never done that here. When somebody comes and says, you know, maybe God has equipped you to work with this age group or that age group or that age group, you are privileged because we don't beg, we solicit and find those who are most gifted and loving kids and bringing them up along with mom and dad in the way God has designed them. This is how we operate this church. Highest priority, our kids. And then as parents, as parents, I've said many times I'd like a Redo, I'd like to say, hey, let me, let me do this thing over again with my three sons. But somehow with a great mama, they have done all right in walking with the Lord. And I thank God for that. But we'd all like to go back and do it a little more biblically than we did. I would, you would. Well, what is the way you bring up kids biblically? The Bible is full of that. We're gonna be dealing with that in the weeks to come. You want to know how to bring up a child in the 21st century, God's way, that's what we're talking about. We've already talked about it. Back, you remember, in the book of Proverbs, that reminds you sort of where we've been. Proverbs says clearly, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Remember I told you that was not a promise, that was a principle? We are to train up a child in its singular, the way. There's not a lot of ways. We can do it a lot of ways, but God has only one way, and we're talking about God's way as to how to do it. One way. And then we turn over to Ephesians, and Paul elaborates Ephesians chapter number six on that one way. Very briefly, he says it. 
Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We'll talk about that in discipline in weeks to come, how to discipline. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, train them up, he said, in the way, and now we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Remember the stages of bringing up kids? And the stage from three to 13, and by the way, these ages are not dogmatized. They may be 14, they may be 12. They're not dogmatized, but in that period of time, after the mother stops being a 24-7 servant of the child and begins to toilet train, begin to bring the child up to do some things for him or herself, then you begin that critical period of three to 13. And that's when we have to discipline, that's the word, that's a part of the training, and then we are to instruct. You have to discipline before you instruct. That's very important. What do I mean by that? I mean that when mom or dad says yes or no or stop or start, they obey virtually every time if you do it right when you say it the first time. I ask uh, myself, how in the world did, how, were, how, how did my mom discipline me? And I look back on it and I can tell you, I thought from three to 13, even after, I had the meanest mom in the world. I really did. She was tough. She didn't mess around. There was absolute here and absolute there until finally, and I remembered this, hadn't thought about it in years. I must have been about 10 years old, and somehow I got into a disagreement with my mother, and at that age, I began to try to explain to her how she was wrong and I was right. <laughs> she didn't agree and didn't bat an eye so I said, I'm going to leave home. I'm going to run away. I remember it like yesterday. I can tell you right where I was standing in our house. And she said, okay. I knew where I was going. See, I had an aunt and uncle had no children. They lived about a mile and a half from us. And when I went there, whoo, man, it was great. No problems. So I was heading for Aunt Gladys, Uncle Howard's house. I went out the front door. I know I turned left. The Tomlinsons live next door. I turned left again to go through the park to go to Aunt Gladys, Uncle Howard's house because I was out of that place where they get caused me so much trouble. He kept saying, no, 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 no. And I got almost out of sight. My mother said, Edwin. I turned around. She said, you left the light on in your room. <laughs> True story. I could not make it up. Listen, in my house, the unpardonable sin was to leave the light on. <laughs> I mean, we cut even today. People that work up here, if I go in the office, they're gone, a the light is on, they hear from the pastor. I'm that picky about lights. <laughs> I don't want to pay those folks and take God's money and throw it away unless it needs to be. And my mother said, you left the light on. She didn't tell me to come back. I knew I had to cut that light on. So I retraced my step, went to the corner, 
went by the Watkins house, went back in front of the Tomlinson's house, turned up my thing and went in there and cut the light on. And in the process, <laughs> I decided, you know, this isn't a bad deal after all. I think I'll stay at home. <laughs> Discipline. Now, if you think that's bad, I asked Lisa about this, my wife. Her mother was strong as steel, just like my mother. And so she was taught to do certain things when she got up every day and her three older brothers, younger brothers, they did the same thing every day, chores, which is a terrific idea, parents. I know you may have never heard of that before. You may call it child abuse, but they need to have chores, three to 13. And so Lisa got up, went to school, was in the first grade and her mother appears at the door and looks at the teacher and says, I want to take Lisa out. And in those days, you know, no big deal. And so Lisa got up, got her books, went with her mother. And her mother didn't say anything, took her to the car. And, and Lisa said, what, what's wrong? Her mother said, you didn't make up your bed this morning. <laughs> Hello? She took her home. First grade, Lisa made up her bed, took her back to school. To this day, to this day, if I'm not out of the bed, she'll make me up in the bed. She makes up the bed every morning. Now, what is all of this childhood silliness about? Parents don't miss the principles. In those, that period of time, you have to dominate, control with ease, with determination, with repetitive teaching so that your children will learn to respond. When they're running the street, you can say stop and they will stop. That's parenting, biblical parenting. You wanna make it a little fancier? We have in our brain 86 billion neurons. I counted them yesterday. <laughs> 86 billion neurons are in our brain. And they have those little electrical and chemical impulses in which they communicate with one another as to how we act and what we do and how all our habits are. Those chemical electrical impulses called synapse, synapses. It's nothing, but it's where they pass through. Now, to change a synapse in your brain or my brain, it takes about 400 repetitions to change, to change something that's in there, 400. Unless in a child, you teach games, and through games and play, a child can change in about 10 plus repetitions. How does that work? Well, you'll teach your child to respond. You remember Simon Says? If you didn't play Simon Says, I don't know if you're an adult. Well, we played Simon Says, Simon Says. And by the way, if you do what Simon Says, you're okay. If you do not do what Simon Says, or Simon doesn't say do it, you don't do it and you're out of the game, remember? Simon says, pat your head, okay. Simon says, touch your nose. Simon says, touch your chin, touch your ear, and you touch your ear, but Simon didn't say it, so you're out. 
You see what you're teaching? You see what you're teaching? You're rewiring a part of their brain. We used to play I Spy. You play I Spy? You'd be in a room saying, I Spy, I Spy, something that is red. What, what's, what is it? They'd look around and find that they'd name things. Oh, it was that flower? Yes. Teaching concentration. Teaching looking for colors. That's how we train up our children. That's part of the mechanism that we use. And that is a part how we teach them discipline. Come, go, stop, lift. Here you are. And we do that from 3 to 13. And then we begin in the latter part of that period, and into the teenage period, you begin to do something else. You give instructions. Do this. Why? No reason. I said do it. And then if after they have done it, they want information, then you tell them why, not before. Remember? That's where we mess up, parents. I messed up many times. And therefore, first, there is discipline, absolutes, we don't do this, we do this. And then following that, there is instruction. And that's where we begin to train. And we talked about it, the different ways that you instruct. What is our goal for our kids? That our sons and daughters will be that man, that woman, God designed them to become. How do we reach that goal? Several ways. What is a part of this instruction? The first part, you want to Make them like Jesus. Build in their life Jesus principles. Jesus principles. They're books we can read. Remember our church showed me a super book I hadn't seen. The, the Bible as Jesus would write. We give books to parents to read to your children at night. The stories of the Bible, the stories of Jesus. And that's the way we begin to build an appetite, an appetite for Jesus. How does this work? In the Hebrew world, when a baby was going from milk to solid food, they would take a date paste, which was sweet, and put it in the roof of their mouth, and they would then begin to transition from milk to solid food. That was creating an appetite. So you create an appetite for your child, for God, so you can see if you're training them up in the thoughts and the mannerism of Jesus. And the next thing we do, you say, I want my son or daughter to be like Jesus, and I want them to be like me. Can you stand up and say, boy, I hope my son turns out like their daddy, or I hope my daughter turns out like their mother. Can you honestly say that? You see, that's the problem. Remember, I've said it many, many times. Children do what we require them to do until they get to be teenagers or a little older. They begin to do what you do and what I do. Can you say, I want my son to be like their father? Well, I'd do anything for my son, but that, to believe in God, to be faithful to his church, to read that Bible every day, that's our goal. Got, well, I'm bringing my child to do what? To be like Jesus. Next thing, say, I want my son, my daughter to be like me. And the third thing we can say, we want them to be in the family, to know they're in the family of God. Let me tell you something. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. Huh. 
If children live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with fear, they learn to be apprehensive. If children live with pity, they learn to feel sorry for themselves. If children live with ridicule, they learn to feel shy. If children live with jealousy, they learn to feel envy. If children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. Huh. But if children live with encouragement, they learn confidence. If children live with tolerance, they learn patience. If children live with praise, they learn appreciation. If children live with acceptance, they learn to love. If children live with approval, they learn to like themselves. If children live with recognition, they learn it is good to have a goal. What are your children? What are your children living with? You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Dr. Young, you said children have to have boundaries and that control is love. What advice would you give to parents who are trying to begin setting boundaries for the first time and finding it difficult to follow through with discipline? Well, number one, you must set boundaries. And then you must follow through with appropriate disciplines that are age-appropriate. You can go to parents who are doing it right, who have done it right, and they'll give you specific counseling. But that's a requirement. Remember, you start very young and you're very strict. Then hopefully if you've done that right, then when they get to be 13 and older, and there's no specific age there, then you can begin to let them express some freedom of themselves. They begin to make right choices on their own. The young years of their life are so critical. If we do that about half right, you won't have to worry about the teenage years. They'll be the most exciting years that mom and dad will ever experience. And some of the most exciting years, the platform upon which your teenagers will stand for the rest of their life. That platform is the body of Christ, and it's Jesus. All right. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. We hope today's message has encouraged you to build your life on the proven truth of God's Word. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.